Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. There's a place here at the table, your coats go by the door. You can kick your shoes off in that pile on the floor. I hope you wore elastic, cause your waistband's gonna get tight. Take time's done, we're having a night. Hi guys. Hi. I'm Sophie. And I'm Ari, and you're listening to Having a Night. The podcast dedicated to reviving the lost art of the dinner party. And here with us today, we have a man who has helped to make the dinner party into what it is today Yeah, in like, this country. Holy moly. By creating a whole new course. I mean, or elevating what Americans formerly thought of as cheese. We have Stephen Jenkins. He's literally America's foremost cheesemonger, not to mention an olive oil savant, an anchovy savant. I mean, Ari and I, we probably could have sat here talking to him for at least another two hours. Oh, yeah, and we will. This has been a really special episode, so listen up. Okay, let's talk about cheese. How did you become the cheese master of this country? I I mean... I um, was the first to import all of those cheeses from France that were unheard of in America, and certainly in New York, they were unheard of. What? They were mine, they were my babies. They were all illegal. The FDA didn't pay Did you just put them in your suitcases? Like, how did you get them in? No, I had my négociant at uh, the Rungis at the market Uh south of town. Léal had just moved from the center of Paris to a suburb south of Paris, Mm -hmm. where all the food in the world would come and then go back to wherever. And then you would import them here and just the FDA, you were just like... I would just smuggle them in here on my pallets of of legal cheese. What were people eating before you brought these cheeses here? Imitations, all the imitations. Okay, so like American brie. And it was a big Danish time of life when everything was Danish. And these were vapid, glossy, flabby cheeses that had no merit whatsoever other than that they were a little bit savory and nourishing. Right. But they had no... Depth. The complexity. Exactly. Wow. Exactly. So So did people go wild when they tasted your cheeses for the first time? People went literally wild. They'd never tasted a camembert, which is among the most complex flavors in the entire realm of gastronomy. They'd never tasted real brie. They didn't have any idea that's what brie is. They never tasted a real chèvre. Yeah. Never tasted a real goat cheese. And they were all my babies. Yeah. And I was known for them. Yeah. What a dark time. I know. To be oh, yeah. And we were oblivious. We didn't even know. Totally. And this is the 70s and the 80s, fully, fully through the 80s. Yeah. A chef had no access to serious ingredients. Yeah. Walnut oil. Forget about God, it. God, I love walnut oil. I pioneered oil. raspberry vinegar, which became a huge fad. Yeah. And indicator of a, of a desire in New Yorkers and Americans to have interesting stuff. Yeah. yeah. So it became very cliched, but I don't care. Raspberry vinegar was cool. Yeah, yeah. totally. You know, I got to go to 
lunch at, at, at Guy Savoie's restaurant in, Mont, in Montmartre, where I was served a salad of mange with walnut oil and raspberry vinegar. Yes. And the, once again, the lights went. I'd never oh had a God. salad like that. My mom's salads were great, but, you know, it wasn't like a mosh salad. What were your other lights going off moments? Because I, I can totally imagine that, that taste of first being like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. Wow, why do these people, wow, why are they so smart? Yeah, We're why do so they know stupid. what's up? We are yeah. so what's with our iceberg lettuce in this wishbone dressing? What's up with that? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so. Being a cheesemonger the depth of knowledge that you have to accrue, because I have some really favorite cheese stores across Bless you. across the country Bless where you. the people, and it's really changed because, you know, you used to be able to walk into, let's say, a fairway where I know you pioneered their cheese program, but you would walk into a fairway, the people knew their cheese, they would offer you to taste yeah. so that you could really have a sense of what you were buying if sure. it wasn't a closed cheese already. Yeah. And now you walk in, everything is pre-cut. Nobody knows what any of the cheeses are. Same with the Whole Foods. But it's yeah, crazy because it's like, so we have access to these products, but nobody who knows about them. So listen, it's fine. It's trial and error. But like that cheese is not cheap. Mm-hmm. And then you end up with something that maybe isn't that great or you were looking chosen. for. You, a, didn't, you weren't impassioned. It, yeah. But it's it's really upsetting because those, my favorite cheese shops, it's you walk in and they're real cheesemongers and they handle and the they cheese. they care about your pleasure. Yep, yep. They want you to be delighted. Yep. Like that's, that's what it's all yeah. about. Yep. Exactly, like a sommelier. Yeah, it really what is. What are you looking for? What, you know, what else? If you're, you're like putting well, together a cheese platter and, and creating yes. some kind of balance. And you leave variety. feeling like, by God, they care about me. I'm yep. coming back. Right, and then you have that knowledge, too. And then yeah. when you have your friends who are trying the you cheese, you can... You educate them. Exactly. Yep. And it's like... Same thing with olive oil. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, I say that all the time in interviews. And, Things are right. The, for your first mission is to find an impassioned cheesemonger. Yes. We were just talking about the fact that City Bakery closed down, oh, and we were talking. Roy Rubin's one of my great I mean, pals for a hundred years. I just started yes, crying on the crying. episode that we were oh, recording. It's all over the place that Maury's closed. Yeah. It's I crazy. Heard it on the radio today. Yeah, and it should be all over the place. But this is exactly it. It's like instead of going to your Whole Foods to find your favorite yeah, cheese, no, find a good local cheese store makes and support me them. Sick that people go to Whole. Foods foods instead of going to a serious baker. I know. Oh, baker, that's a real, that's a serious thing. Because hopefully you can get great bread in a lot of places, but like Whole Foods is not where you're going to find your great bread. It sucks. It sucks. Once again, with bakers, it's it's finding a baker in your area, and if there isn't one, you shouldn't be living there. Right. Mark Furstenberg, the great D.C. baker. Mm-hmm. He's older than me, and he's recently opened up a new bakery, and it, it, he's an anchor to that entire neighborhood in mm-hmm. D.C., and uh, it's bread first, and yeah. it, there, there's just not that many across And the it's country. true, that idea of a place being an anchor, and that's it. So I live really close to City Bakery, and it's that place, yeah, you go in the morning, you have a pastry, in the afternoon you go, you have a hot chocolate, whatever it is, it's... And there's a place called Bread's Bakery that's really great that has a similar vibe, and mm-hmm. it's open, you know, opens at 7, closes at, like, 9. Mm-hmm. And it's it's a it feels like such a neighborhood spot, and we're losing them in this city oh, so rapidly. God. When we talk about maybe there'll be this backlash against the Whole Foods, the Trader Joe's, of, of going back to, you know, I go, I get my veggies from my CSA, I get my bread from Bianqui, you know, I go to the fishtails from my fishmonger, yeah. I, you know, go to a cheesemonger, and there's something so lovely and kind of European feeling yes. about that. If only I had, yes. like, a bike, 
kind of big yeah. basket. But it just <laughs> yes. feels like I'm going to gather the things that are the best from the people they know my name as opposed to I'm just, you know, filling up this huge cart with everything I need in bulk sizes. It's very American, but I think think people in our generation want to go back to the old way of fewer and better things. You can only pray that they do. Paris is a city of shops. This is like a motto for Paris. And we have often said that about New York for a hundred years, is that New York is a city of shops. Paris is less and less becoming a city of shops. New York is no longer a city of mm-hmm. shops. Yep. It's a city of banks and Dwayne Reeds, mm-hmm. yep. CVSs. And Starbucks. Mm-hmm. That's yep. it. And it's it's loathsome. And we should be ashamed of ourselves. We should. Yep. And we should. we should have contempt for our fellow man for allowing this to be this way. Right. It's, just, it's not right. Yeah. You go out every day to your fishmonger, to your cheesemonger, to your coffee roaster. Right. To your florist. Right. As a, as a way of life, and you visited a half a dozen shops for the absolute bare minimum of what you demand yeah. to be alive. Right. Well, and also because that's what that's what life is made of is like a series of actual interactions with other human beings. Isn't that the truth? Yeah, where you're talking about the things that you love and maybe new things that you don't love yet. But and the, you're hearing what's what's going on. Yeah. And you're not just talking to yeah. the proprietor or the person waiting on you. You're talking to people. Yeah. Shopping well, with. and you're not just talking on your cell phone to your friend on the other end while you yeah. scan the cereal aisle. Like you're having an yeah. actual human experience. Yeah. That is connected to the earth and, yeah. and the environment. I mean, it is crazy. To How think. did we get so outnumbered, though? I don't understand. Yes, capitalism. I mean, it's frightening. Well, I also Frightened. think that this is a we live in a country where convenience is like convenience is number one in America. Comfort and convenience yeah, is yeah. number one. So if you can be in your car, yeah. if you can have someone deliver Ordered something to your house, you can just stay at your desk. Yeah, creating. Oh, you know, God. I bet I think it would be so interesting to take a poll of people and say, listen, for two extra dollars, your cheese is gonna taste. So much better. Or, no, to go two extra blocks out of your way, Mm -hmm. the cheese is going to be exquisite. Or you can buy it right downstairs. I bet the majority of the people would just be like, well, yeah, but I would just rather get the one downstairs. I won't really know the difference. And that's why I'm a misanthrope. That's why I have such contempt for most people because Mm -hmm. they they go that I don't really care. I just don't really care. Yeah. It's, I don't either. Uh, I, care. We care really we're a lot. Way outnumbered. Yeah, guys. This <laughs> okay. We're we three missing girls. Okay. We <laughs> talk about the positive cheese. cheese. I'm working on the. Positive. I'm sorry. We are too. But you've done so many great things for this country, and we have so many listeners who are just getting into food and who are starting to throw dinner parties. And so for them, what would I mean? What can you tell your kind of most amateur person about cheese in general. I mean, it is so amazing that just from milk comes such a variety of flavor and texture. I feel terrible about about my contribution to American cheeses. All these American cheeses that are so good are like $48 <laughs> so a pound. So true. And That's yeah, very funny. Lots of folks don't want to spend $12 on a little wedge quarter pound of cheese. And then I take a great deal of, of credit for having made that happen. The other side of that coin is that so many of the great European cheeses are now have, have been 
vitiated had been lessened by pasteurization and mass production while still bearing the name of the once once magnificent cheese they're no goddamn good anymore so there so you're saying that cheeses that used to be raw unpasteurized cheeses are now is it because when they're imported they have to be pasteurized yep so where can we find raw cheeses then um, they the have american to be made cheese, here. so lots yeah. of have raw, to be made know. here and there's a number of really fine cheeses that are made from pasteurized milk. This is not an either-or situation. There are some marvelous cheeses that are made from pasteurized milk, despite the fact that throughout my career I have said you cannot make a great cheese from pasteurized milk. You're being being cheated from the very beginning. But that's not true. There's some marvelous pasteurized cheeses. And some, though very few of the Europeans, do what they call thermizing rather than pasteurizing. Mm. Thermizing is heating milk at a low temperature for a long period of time. Ah, sous vide so retains milk, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So that they retain all of those wonderful raw milk characteristics. Yeah. There are some camemberts and brie's that, that do that, but most people who import cheese don't care about that. All yeah. they care about is, is brie or whatever. Right. So then that's actually a good thing is for people, for us to know certainly, is like if you're buying local or American cheeses, mm-hmm. you get to buy raw, whereas mm-hmm. if you're buying imported and mm-hms. you're paying for import. Well, but well once again, you should be relying on your cheese monk. Exactly. If he or she is worth his or her salt, he or she's going to know what's going to knock your socks off. Right. Okay. Rock you. And that's that's all you really need to know is your cheesemonger. Right. You got to right. trust your person. Yeah. yeah. What exactly is cheese? Let's do the most basic question ever. What what does cheese mean? Cheese is when when an enzyme that occurs naturally or is added to it at a certain quantity causes the caseins to link up, to clog up and come together and form curd. Okay. That's it. That's it. From then on, there's there's myriad applications to that curd to achieve a certain end. And what are the different types of, like, le- under the cheese umbrella, what are the main types of cheeses? Well, I've been working on that for 40 years, but, but, <laughs> but basically, because there's exceptions to all the all the classifications. You, know, yeah. you go from fresh cheeses to right. soft, ripened cheeses to... Soft cheeses to semi-firm cheeses to blue cheeses. There's there's categories. Right. And the cheesemaker is inclined to think that he or she can make whatever cheese they want wherever they are. But indeed, the reason certain cheeses – the reason all the great cheeses exist in a certain format, in a certain shape mm-hmm. and size – is defined by the region that it came from. Mm -hmm. The reason the Swiss cheeses and the great French Jura Alp cheeses are huge Mm -hmm. was not because the cheesemaker wanted them that way, but but because the pastures were so remote that it would have been impractical to have small cheeses that needed to be transported from here to there. So make great, huge ones that made it much easier to get all of that milk turned into cheese and into the biggest town that's Mm -hmm. nearby. Likewise, brie wasn't... No one made a decision that said they want a cheese that's about two or three inches thick and about twelve or fourteen inches across with a with a crude fleury with a with a with a, a floury crust on it. It yeah. was the atmosphere in that part huh. of France, just east of Paris, the humidity and the bacteria in the air and the yeasts that flew around that made that cheese ripen 
properly only if it was two or three inches wow. thick and 12 or 14 inches across. So is that it's part like of why, like, there's no such— That's pretty cool. That's yeah. really cool. Yeah. But, like, could we ever make a good Parmesan in America? We make magnificent Parmesan What? We do? Belgio, Belgioioso in, in Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, an Italian family who are famous for their provolone of all things. They I've have seen a plant. Their they have a huge cheese outfit, enormous cheese outfit in Wisconsin, where they make a Parmigiano. That's absolutely not Parmigiano. It's Parmesan. Yeah. And they make a Gorgonzola, both of which are as good as anything really? that's ever been made. Wow. Absolutely. Wisconsin. Same okay. goes for blue cheese. Yeah, there are arguments for Cabrales being the greatest blue cheese in the world, along with Roquefort, mm-hmm. which if you haven't had in 100 years, and I'll, I'll bet you $100, most people haven't had Roquefort in 100 years, if ever. Yeah, a real one. Two of the great, great blue cheeses, Cabrales and Roquefort, and Forma d'Ambert from the Auvergne in the center of France, and Gorgonzola, mm-hmm. and... Uh, Stilton, absolutely, and, and Shropshire Blue mm-hmm. from England. Is Cambazola like— Cambazola is a fake fraud it's a phony that's oh. a German knockoff of, of Gorgonzola and, oh, and Brie. Oh, Made in a factory from dead milk, totally dead <gasps> milk, and a marketing campaign that made it famous. Wow, so wow, wow. Anyone that buys Cambazola is contributing to the demise of serious food throughout the world. Noted. And I have heaped scorn on the Austrians and the Germans my entire career career, and I love going to Germany and Austria. I love being there. But their cheese industry is all about mass production and uh-huh. dead milk. Oregon, my friends who own the, the Rogue River Creamery, have just won the greatest cheese in the world uh-huh. because of their Oregon Blue. Made Can from we get Oregon. that here? It's pretty rare, okay. but you'd have to go to Can a, you order it online? You, you could try. Okay. Or you could, we have to go there. But yeah. It, but it's, um, Road trip. It, it's organic raw cow's milk that is turned into a blue cheese by my friend Carrie and is then wrapped in Syrah grapevine leaves mm. that have been soaked in a pear liqueur, which sounds really hokey. Right. But they've been doing this for a dozen years since they invented this cheese. And it's just Wow. It's considered and I, I think it's absolutely magnificent. You can't say that the greatest Parmesan only comes from Emilia Romagna, though it does. <laughs> but you can't really say that with conviction because of people like the uh, the Arricchio boys, father and son, who make this magnificent grating cheese that they give a similar name to. Yeah. Uh, as Parmigiano Reggiano. Huh. Wow. You just can't say that anymore yeah. because there's too many talented cheesemakers. Can we talk about rinds for a second? Because, mm-hmm. of course, there are some cheeses where you're obviously going to eat the rind. A brie, you're not going to cut mm-hmm. off the rind. That's ridiculous. If you have people coming over and they start mm-hmm. doing that, they're not your friends. Mm-hmm. But some cheeses, of course, the rinds are not meant to be eaten. How mm-hmm. can you tell? Common sense. Okay. Try if it's it. sandy, rind, rind don't eat you, it. <laughs> a rind that you're not going to want to eat is is obviously um, dirty, but, moldy, right. not palatable, has mm-hmm. a texture that feels like gross waxy, on your tongue. Yeah. Yeah. So it's really totally common. But sometimes, like, for instance, like a Taleggio, mm-hmm. it, I feel like I would want to eat that rind. But then it has sand in it. Exactly. So it's a matter of common it's just sense a t- yeah. and personal preference. Right. And beyond that, don't worry about it. <laughs> don't worry about it. It's a matter of taste. 
you were talking earlier about this idea of towns and maps and towns that are named after certain things. Mm -hmm. Do you still have any favorites like that? Any favorite what? Like any of those favorite towns that are so famous for making one particular thing. Are you looking for your next vacation Uh, Yes. How would you know? (laughs) Well, Shaka on the south coast of of Sicily is famous for anchovies. Mm. Michelle and I, my wife and I, are are anchovy freaks. Mm. Us too. And that's fun to talk about because, you know, 99 out of 100 people hate anchovies. And they think they do. Only because they've never had a really great anchovy. I've learned about anchovies, not in Sicily and not in France, but but in in Spain and specifically in Barcelona, Mm. where a great tapas is a, a plate of four fillets of of an anchovy that you just absolutely meditate over. Oh my Little God. tiny bites Ugh. of. And um, I discovered that the best ones come from the coast of Catalonia. Um, and I began to import them. And they're, they're it's just, just magnificent. They, they come from a... Uh, a village right on the coast that's right outside Empuries, where the great Roman and Greek ruins are. Um, and also Extremadura, not a, not a village, but a region, which is just west and south of Madrid. And this is the region that is arguably the most significant region for food in the entire realm Jeez. of gastronomy. Why? Because in Extremadura... This is where the Pata Negra pig is allowed to run oh. wild oh. <laughs> for its most of its life and certainly the last few months of its life where they feed only on acorns. Yep. And these, these Pata Negra, these black hoof pigs, have been gorging on these acorns, which mm-hmm. renders them the name Beota, B-E-L-L-O-T-A. So they're, they're homo- this is, results in Hamon Iberico Beota which is the single greatest edible substance on earth. <laughs> Certainly the oh greatest single protein substance on earth. And it's a, a, a food stuff that you suck on. You don't chew it. Yeah. Like the anchovies I mentioned a little while ago. It's something that you meditate over and you suck on these oh little pieces of this ham and they come from Extra Madura. That's what we're talking about is Extra Madura. <laughs> we're talking because, about my next vacation. Sophie asked me, <laughs> Sophie asked me, are there still some places where you yeah. identify? Yes, Extra Madura because of the Iberico <sighs> ham. But that's not it with that's Extra Madura. No. There's more. Extra Madura is also responsible for the greatest olive oil. Uh-huh. In the world. Now, look, there's fabulous olive oil all over the place. Wonderful olive oil if you can get it when it's fresh enough. Right. And it, when it can, right. it's come from a miller who's really assiduous about what he's done all summer long with his olives. The, uh, but the Gata Herdes olive oil that comes from the Gata mountain range and the Herdes villages, the groves that are all around there, produce an olive oil that is deep green and not because of leaves being left in the in the crush, because of the nature of the indigenous olive to Extremadura, which is the Manzanilla Casareña. Once again, you hear Casares. There's a lot of things that are Casares in this area. And the result is this exquisite olive oil that most people have never heard of. It has a cult following among people who are my people. Yeah. And they never never buy anything else as long as I don't as long as I have that in my warehouse. How do you figure out if an olive oil is 
I feel like you we should get to it's this a later. Of taste. It's totally but I mean, subjective. But but how am I supposed to know from a glass bottle? Do you know what I mean before because I taste it? Because you must know from me now and forever that that bottle or tin that you're regarding in a shop mm-hmm. or online has been in that bottle or that tin for months and yeah. months and months. It's stale mm-hmm. and probably wasn't very well selected in the first place by someone who doesn't know a bloody thing about olive oil. True. So first of all, you're getting beat at retail no matter yeah. what you do. And you're getting ripped off because the prices are so high. Oh There's all God. these people in between you and that shelf and you going, hmm, I like that label. And I love the shape of that bottle. But that's all the information you have. Yeah, exactly. My well, oil, that's, on the other hand, you get all the information you could possibly want to know about that particular oil. Uh-huh. Plus, you know, it's been selected by a fanatic, by an idiot savant. Is that you? Which That would be me and the show. <laughs> Hell yeah. yeah. Which Obsessive. is pretty huge. That's what you want. Yeah. yeah. You want someone who's obsessed by exactly. it. Exactly. And has been doing it for a long time and cares very deeply about it. Mm-hmm. But moreover, the most important thing is that ours is fresher. I import it in huge barrels. So it's as fresh as the day it was put in the barrel, which was a few hours after it was turned into olive oil. And do you get them all over the world? Like, are you sourcing mostly from Italy? Specific oils. Okay, tell me what they are. Four of them are Spanish, very regionally specific. Okay. One's Portuguese, one's Sicilian, and one's Tuscan. Wow. And And I don't want anymore. I don't want a Greek. I'm, I'm. being in my arm twisted to buy the specific Greek oil for next season. I will or I won't. Mm-hmm. I'm not interested in California oil because they're negligible cultivars. They're not very distinguished cultivars. Uh-huh. And uh, France, I specialized in southern French oil. I had 16 in my shop, so I had 15 stores. Uh-huh. And I was the king of olive oil, but certainly the king of French olive oil, but I won't buy any for olive oil Jones because they're so bloody expensive. Uh-huh. Ah. They're just grossly overpriced, as is Tuscan oil, but I have to have a Tuscan oil. Yeah, right. And that's only due to ethnocentrism and the resultant uh, demand for Tuscan oil that keeps that price ridiculously high. Yeah. And the uh, French olive oil comes from real estate that would be better suited to summer homes for Brits. Right. <laughs> and so it's worth a lot more yeah. Yeah. as real estate than it is as a farm. Huh. So yeah. you just, that's a ton of information you got right there. But the most important stuff about it is that if an olive oil is not early harvest, it's not worthy of you. But is, You need to understand that from the get-go. But is that for olive oil that you're using as a finishing olive oil or is that for olive oil also that you're using for cooking? You early harvest oils for everything. Everything. Cheap enough to use for frying and for sautéing. Yeah, you may neutralize a few of the nuances but still you've got this grand bitter, peppery, nuancey oil that you would not have if you said like everybody tells you the, the, the prevailing wisdom is you can use an ordinary oil for cooking. Well, that's not true unless you don't care that much about what you're cooking. Right. 
Well, for some cuisines, it's like if you're cooking Chinese, for instance, it's like you don't want to use an olive oil like that because it adds so much amazing flavor, but it kind of— Well, not so much that it adds flavor. It's that it amplifies flavor. Mm. It doesn't really overlie the new, whatever the ingredients are in the Chinese recipe. It just amplifies those ingredients because of the bitterness that's in early harvest oil. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And bitterness is all, all, all important. Yeah. Because as adults, we like Campari and coffee Mm -hmm. and things that are slightly bitter. Yep. And if you cook with something that's slightly bitter, like an early harvest oil, you're amplifying, you're boosting, you're augmenting flavors that you don't get out of late harvest oils. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And 95%, 98% of all the oil in the world is late harvest oil. Wow, wow. Why would that be? Why would that be? Because it's easier to harvest. It's not easier. It's not easier to harvest. But the yield of a ripe olive is two to three times the yield of a green olive. Mm -hmm. So a miller wants to make money. Yeah. And the more stock he has, the more oil he has, the more money he's going to make. And is it all the same variety of olive? No. There's there's 1,354 in Italy alone that are used for olive oil. Okay. Okay. And so when you are choosing where you want your olive oils from, and I assume you know the farmers and the people who are pressing it and everything, are you also choosing – you're also choosing places based on the specific varietal? No. 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 Okay. No. Got it. All these little regions all over Europe have specific cultivars that are indigenous, and that's what's cool. Yeah. It's, it's, a, it's an apple that only grows in a specific county upstate. Yeah. Yeah. It's the apple I want. It's an olive that's in extra Madura. I want it to be the Manzanilla Castorania. That's, that's their olive. And in Tuscany and in, in Provence, you know, there's a... There's at least a half a dozen cultivars in every grove, and that's there are reasons for that, because certain cultivars do better in any given right. season than another, yeah. and they like to blend cultivars because they think they're achieving a certain a certain profile, which is totally nonsense. You really it's nonsense. So it's not like blending grapes necessarily for wine. No, okay, it's very different. Um, we strive to have monocultivars. We strive to import oils that are one cultivar, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and there are reasons for that, too. Mainly that when you start blending cultivars, you can't trace the origin of an olive, of a specific olive oil. Right. We like the notion Mm -hmm. that this olive oil says it's a Bianco Lila, and if you chemically test it and you, you can prove that there's one cultivar in there because of the the enzymes that are specific and it, it's just very interesting the way um nobody knows anything about this but me yeah. <laughs> well we're so lucky to have yeah, you here so if you if we walk away from each other all i want you to most important for me to, that you retain is that an olive oil be early harvest yeah and not just because of the the culinary yeah. Also because that bitterness and pepperiness are indications of very high polyphenols. Mm. There are several phenols in an olive oil, but the polyphenols are the ones that are the antioxidants. Mm-hmm. Okay. And the antioxidants are what keep us from ever growing old and ever being sick again. Ever, ever, ever. And they don't exist in late harvest oils. At a point in October all over Europe... If you don't harvest those olives when they're green and they begin to turn color, the phenol level drops like a rock. Mm-hmm. It doesn't gradually go down. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It drops like a rock. And you've got late harvest oil that they refer to as sweet. Mm. Right. And, oh, I taste all these nuancy things. And it's like, 
tasting a wine. I taste <laughs> and crushed mango leaf and all that it's crap. Yeah. <laughs> it's just yeah. nonsense. Yeah. Right. Oh but you God. have no merit. There is no merit to a late harvest oil except that it's it's olive oil that smells like olives and it tastes good and it's it's okay with bread, but it has no pepperiness and it has no spiciness. Yeah. And it and has no complexity yeah. really and it has no antioxidants. And um and when no you are you and your bottles are clear, right? Mm-hmm. And so what's the deal? Because often, you know, I hear, oh my God, you can't possibly well, store off, olive oil in a no nobody serious about olive oil would leave it out in the light. Right. You'd leave it in the pantry where it's dark after mm-hmm. you've used it. Good good to say to our listeners. Second, um, my labels are so big. Plus, they're white that they reflect light. Third, this nonsense about, oh, you should only buy olive oil in a dark bottle. That's ludicrous because dark attracts light right into the bottle. Very true. And leaches out the vitamins and the color of the oil right through the dark bottle. Wow. So everything you've read is wrong. They're all full of baloney. God. This is important. (laughs) It's it's really important. I should be spoking for the goddamn industry (laughs) because it's all upside down up topsy tavy and nobody knows anything yeah and they buy what's got a cool label yeah, yeah. no it's true it's got a cool bottle right of course well Same and anything. i think <laughs> you you think oh well i'm spending you know 33 dollars on this teeny tiny thing of right of tasting olive oil but yeah. in reality i think you're right it's like there shouldn't be a tasting olive oil you should use it in your salad of dressing course. you should use it on your mozzarella you should it's use it to you should use it stir fast. fry it's yeah it's not like you buy a bottle and you want it to last six months you want to go through it quickly and then you get a new the faster bottle. you use it the better you feel and the more enjoyment you have i mean yeah. so you've got extra madura with the single greatest substance in the world in Ibericoham. You've got extra Madura that has one of the absolutely most magnificent olive oils of the entire realm of olive oil. Mm-hmm. And third, they make the greatest cheese oh my God. that was ever came down the line. And while I will always say that Parmigiano-Reggiano is the single greatest cheese in the world, there's an argument for me to give to you that the greatest cheese in the world is Torta del Cazar. Once again, Casares, C-A-S-A-R. Cazar. And it's called a torta, a cake, a pudding, not a queso, because it's so pudding-like that it has to be wrapped in a strip of burlap lest gravity make it flow horizontal. Oh my God. And Torta del Cazar is, is, is raw sheep's milk that is served with the... Uh, top rind, they're about you know, they're about three pounds each, mm-hmm. about three or four inches thick, with the top rind that's like deer antler velvet, is taken off, yes. and wooden spoons are stuck in this this pudding of a cheese. So people just take a spoon oh. of it and flop it or whatever. <laughs> yeah, some great bread. Yes. Oh, my God. Yes, yes. So this Extremadura, the, re- the, the region that runs from west of Spain all the way to the Portuguese border and then down to the northern border of Andalusia mm-hmm. and Sevilla is not far from there. So that's wow. Extremadura that contains the Dehesa, not the Dehesa. It contains Dehesa. Which is all, which is Walt Disneyland. This has been so awesome <laughs> for us. This is off the top of our head. You don't even know. I'm still know. waiting to start the podcast. Oh, no, my God. We should have you come just, on like every yeah, once a quarter. Tr- yeah, exactly. How do you feel about being our permanent guest? <laughs> wow. Cheesemon- You're the resident cheesemonger of the, po- of the epi- podcast. You know what I do sure, really want to sure. know? 
how, what's your favorite way of storing cheese? And when do you like People to take it out? That. People always ask that. Oh, well, I have another again, question. Okay. Once again, it's common sense. It's important that you buy in quantities small enough that you can wipe them out at one or two sittings and not have an issue of having to, to wrap them a specific way. Right. But you'll put, you're, you're okay with putting them in a refrigerator as long as you take them out with enough time to oh, mellow yeah. before you oh, eat. Oh, sure. I've, I've got, I used to be real doctrinaire about that, but I'm not anymore. Okay. It's no and, big deal. But, mm-hmm. but the way a really serious savant would be with the cheese would be to do it the way the French do it, which is have a wooden box mm. that is a screen on four sides and a hatch that you can open and put your shards, pieces of cheese that you yes. didn't wipe out at that sitting, close the hatch, hang it from a branch of the tree. Flies can't get to it because of the screens on four sides. And the wind can pass through it to keep the cheese living and breathing. And the advantage is that it's always at room temperature and you don't yeah. have to leave the cheese out to, to, to lose the fridge free, mm. the fridge temperature that it's at. Yeah. That's the best way to do it. If you want to do it on your kitchen counter, that's perfectly fine too if you don't mind having the funk of the cheese in the kitchen. That's the, uh, that's the best <laughs> way to preserve cheese. Now, the, the, the ordinary normal way where normal people like you and me would preserve cheese would be to... Wrap it in wax paper Mm -hmm. so that the wax paper is flush with the exposed surfaces of the cheese or tinfoil. And try and avoid plastic, though I don't really care anymore. I use plastic wrap, but, but, but I also like to avoid plastic wrap and instead use wax paper. Why? Because with wax paper or tinfoil, there are still interstices. So and the cheese can still breathe. Mm-hmm. It's plastic wrap that suffocates a cheese mm-hmm. and allows the cheese to feed on itself, which alters its flavors right. and its textures. Right. Particularly if you're allowing that cheese to languish in your refrigerator until it's it's growing surface mold. Yeah. Which once again is no big deal. Just skim it away and go about your business. Yes. And don't buy such a big piece. Uh, next time, buy a piece where you're going to knock it off and have to go back to the cheese store and get another fresh piece. Right. So preserving cheeses is common sense. Don't buy it so big that it's an issue. And try and avoid plastic, but don't be, you know, don't be silly about it. Yeah. It's yeah. okay to use it. So before we wrap up, our last question, what's your favorite dinner party that you've ever thrown oh, or I attended? What was our favorite dinner party? <laughs> I think it was when one of my importer friends gave me a couple of tins of golden Iranian Ocetra caviar. And I I served it with nothing but Wonder Bread that I had taken the crust off and cut into triangles and warmed up in the toaster. There was no accoutrement for that caviar. No onion. There was none of that. There was just... Absolutely zero degrees of vodka and wooden spoons and golden Ocetra Iranian mm. caviar and little toast points. Yes. And that's when we drank vodka and ate caviar oh until God. we were all drunk and, and then we got high and <laughs> ate some more caviar. Yeah. Now that's a dinner party. Oh my God, that. <laughs> that was a dinner party. Thank you yeah. to Ten. Stephen Jenkins, the most amazing cheesemonger, olive oil producer, knowledgeable. Holy. Guys, imagine what you would be eating if it weren't for this man that we're sitting with. You'd be eating crabs. <laughs> Singles. 
Oh, my God. Wow. Hey, Kraft Singles work on a great burger. Thank you. This is our really internal do. debate. I say yes, and she says I'm a cheddar. Say I'm yes. a cheddar girl. Cheddar's fine on a burger, but, you know. Yep. Oh, I love yes, American Yes, one point for me. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much to Colin Schmeling, our editor, to Rebecca Cobert, to New Neighborhood, Ad Large, Authentic. Go out there and meet your favorite cheesemonger. 